Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview a woman in hospitality who inspires me with her courage and compassion, her conviction and her actions. On today's show, I am thrilled to speak with Gabriela Camara, the owner of two of my favorite restaurants in the world, because she has one restaurant in San Francisco called Cala, and one in Mexico City called Contramar, which I got the I had the pleasure of visiting just this past October. Today, Netflix is, reduce, is reducing. That's funny. They're not reducing. <laughs> releasing. So today, they're releasing a film about these two restaurants, a documentary called A Tale of Two Kitchens. And she's also the author of a brand new cookbook called My Mexico City Kitchen. So welcome, Gabriela. Thank you so much. It's so, such a pleasure being here. I am completely fascinated by the way in which you inhabit multiple worlds at the same time. You inhabit Mm. Mexico and America Mm -hmm. in your own past. Your parents are um, Mexican and Italian. And so today I want to talk about borders and borderless and the blocks that keep us apart and the things that can bring us together, Mm -hmm. which of course... In your life involve many things, politics, activism, and food. Yes. So when you were growing up, it seemed that indeed because of your background, mm-hmm. you inherited you, this interest in two cultures. Yes. I'd love to hear a little bit about how your you know, Italian family and Mexican families influenced you and what that felt like to be a, a creature of those two places. Um, it felt, I mean, I guess it's the only existence I know, but it always felt both torn and also enriched. It felt nostalgic and it also felt exciting. So let's talk about where Mm -hmm. you were living, because Mm -hmm. um, with your family and your parents, you also were sort of outsiders in a place Um, that even though it was your own, you were still, because of their passions and their interests, you were a little bit outsiders. So can you take me back to your your childhood and what that place was and what they were doing and how that made you feel? So I, I was born in Chihuahua, where my parents had built a house in the 
outskirts in the really slummy part of Chihuahua, in the worst neighborhood in the, you know, there was nobody of my parents' um, caliber, really. Like nobody with their education, nobody with their background lived there. Nobody would, it was not a, a place where people aspired to live. It was a place that people aspired to leave. And why did they choose that as a place to live? Because my father had this social project there. He had this um, this this community uh, project, this clinic, school. Um, and my mother, when she moved there, integrated herself to that part of my life, of my father's life, which then became my life. This life of always being on the lookout for others' needs, always um, being with the underprivileged, always serving communities that were in need of certain aids or in need of attention, always very progressive, very anti-government, very anti um U.S. invasions of the rest of the world and control, very anti-imperialistic in the in the in a very you know 60s 70s um, way. I I have very distinct memories of always having these amazing characters come in and out of my house, and you know uh, we moved from Chihuahua when I was about three four years old, and we moved to Mexico City, and then we uh, soon after moved to Teposlan, which is where my brother and I grew up. And Teposlan was a small town. But I remember people from all walks of life and, you know, friends of theirs from graduate school and amazing intellectuals and also immigrants that had nowhere to go. And it was like a, a really wide range of people that I grew up knowing how to relate to. And I feel that that has, of course, enriched me greatly. But it's also, when you're growing up, I was, you know, in Chihuahua, we did not belong there. Or we were, you know, other kids in our neighborhood literally, you know, lost teeth because they didn't have enough nutrition. They ate too much sugar. They died. The mortality rate went um, down when my when my parents uh, put that health center because they would only tell them, you know, to keep on breastfeeding their babies when they were born and to keep on weighing them and measuring them just as a way of checking if, you know, if their growth chart was right. And they, I remember, I remember playing with these growth charts and I remember the babies would come into the clinic and they would weigh them. And I, you know, so it was, it was always a part of, it was always a very natural, I mean, it was always life. So I didn't think it was extraordinary, but I did realize that we weren't the same as people around us. I did realize that we were like the little blonde kids um, then when we moved to Tepoztlan, in Tepoztlan, uh, most Mexicans or most people who are local are darker skinned and they come from their very proud um, Aztec ancestry. And I remember my brother and I would always say, no, we are Mexicans. We're just from the north of Mexico, which isn't, you know, isn't even like racially. We didn't even belong to the north of Mexico because we were like fair skinned because my mother was Italian and my father was Mexican, but looked Spanish or looks Spanish. Um, in Mexico, there's a huge um, racial division that nobody talks about, but it's a very... It's it's a huge like there's a there's a very very big racial and class issue that is tied up and has always been combined. 
um, because it's an imperial, you know, it's a, it's it's a colony, it's a colonized country, and we still have the sequels of that. And they say that before the Spaniards arrived, the Aztecs were colonizers of everything that was there, and they were also a brutal regime. So we've had this history of, you know, colonized uh, people. So when I think about mm-hmm. that, the way that you grow up, mm-hmm. to me telescoping everything, making it very tight and Mm -hmm. small, Mm -hmm. I see such a direct connection to the restaurant that you opened in San Francisco. Yes. Get to Contramar. Yes. But to Kala, where um, you employed previously incarcerated uh, individuals Mm -hmm. and integrated them, I mean, so that it's seamless. It's not like someone, you know, wears a stripe that says... This is yes. where I came from. Yes. I mean, you have a, a fundamental belief, yes. it seems, in, you know, that we're all one. Totally. And interestingly, you sort of grew up with the the seeds of that, but mm-hmm. seeing something quite different. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about why you believed that that would work at Kala as a way to run a restaurant? Because I've always believed that people are worthy I've, I've always believed in each individual having an intrinsic worthy part of, you know, being alive is being worthy. And I, ha- you know, I was brought up, I was raised to consider everybody capable and equally important. And I do think that for example, it's something that I had done in Contramar because in restaurants, one of the things that, that you know, why, why I did, why I, why I chose to use this hiring uh, practice in, in, in Gala is because restaurants have always been places where social mobility can happen and you don't need a, a career. You don't need to be university trained to be a server. You need many things. No, not everybody can be a, a good server, but you need, you do not need like an academic training. So I think that in that, in that, you know, in that, in this world of restaurants, I found a very good place to integrate different interests of mine and also to have an, a different, a very varied audience and a very varied group of people or very different groups of people that I had to integrate in one space. And that's one of the things that fascinated me about restaurants from the beginning. And when w- I, what are the different groups? So, you know, you have like hard working class um, people who come from the bottom up, many times from bad backgrounds, many times from incarceration, many times from, you know, past crimes that they have overcome or have, you know, served time for, or um, addictions that they have really overcome, or addictions that they overcome while they work with us, Um, or... um, I thought that was one of the beautiful things in uh, the film, Mm -hmm. you know, in uh, Contramar, Mm -hmm. there's a GM, I think, Mm -hmm. who says... Mao. um, Who says, people come, and if they have addictions, we work them through it. We don't say you know, oh my gosh, you're I done. Know. It's a it's a place of second chances. And um, at Kala, the thing that moved me the most in, in the film was the, the server who was applying for a job and he, you know, was having a great interview with um, Emma. Uh-huh. And 
he said, I just need to tell you something. And they're like, oh no, like what is this going to be? Uh-huh. You, you know, I, yeah. I have 10 children. I, I can't move from yeah, yeah, o- yeah. Ohio. And it was like, I've been in, you know, incarcerated for the last 30 years. And they're like, so? Uh-huh. I mean, the freedom of that, but also taking care of people as they go through this, just addiction if it comes, seems unusual. I think, you know, restaurants are places where you take care of people. You take care of your guests. But I believe that true successful restaurants take care of each person who's a part of the restaurant. And that's how you begin. That's how you can take care of others. Because you can take care of yourself. You can take care of your um, colleagues. You can take care of or your purveyors. You can take care of everything that you put. You know, you, you, you care for everything in your restaurant. And that's how it becomes a relevant or good restaurant. And then, of course, you care for your guests. You do it all because you, need, you, you want it to be successful. <laughs> but you need to care for, for people. And I believe that in dealing, I mean, in, in restaurants, you end up always dealing with people who have really serious issues mm-hmm. that most likely have not been resolved. And if they have been, it's great. But many times they haven't. So many times I find myself uh, with people who ask me like, why I know so much about the 12 steps of um, alcoholism, um, addiction, uh, addiction recovery. recovery. Yeah. And, you know, like, why do you know the, the 12 step program so well? Like, because I've gone through it with so many employees. I mean, not that I've gone through it, but it's always it's always important for somebody to overcome an addiction. It's always important for them to have a good support, not a co-dependent relationship but good support and I've learned how to do that and I've learned by learning about how difficult it is to overcome these addictions and and I guess the only thing I can provide for the staff that works in my restaurants is a really good environment where they feel safe and in San Francisco the the I think the the real genius behind this hiring program was Emma because she had been, she was aware of, she had worked at a Remind prison. Her last name. Emma Rosenbush. Rosenbush right. She was my assistant and she was moving back to San Francisco after having spent uh, a few years in Mexico City where I met her. And when she learned that I was going to go live in San Francisco, she asked me if she could work with me and we started looking at spaces together and it was just such a joy to work with Emma from the beginning. But uh, she's an incredible human being. I adore her. She, like, we've become family. But Emma, one of the things, I mean, and she knew Contramar and she really admired Contramar. And I think she really admired this part of Contramar, of being so, of course, it's an amazing restaurant too, where everybody, you know, everybody who's important or famous is attracted to go to Contramar. But actually, the attention, if you, if you, if you scratch a little bit, you go a little bit deeper, you realize that everybody in the restaurant is actually being really well taken care of. And when we don't do that, I feel that we have failed terribly. But as a team, that's our most important mission. And when when I was, you know, okay, let's do this restaurant. Yes, let's do a restaurant in San Francisco. But there's space for it. I found that as much Mexican food as they have in San Francisco, in Northern, in California in general, I really found a space for something that they didn't have. But my biggest concern was staffing. And I thought, who am I, who are we going to find that will actually appreciate the job? Because in my experience, the only servers or the only cooks or the only people that you want working with you are people who really want to be with you and who really will appreciate what you can offer them or what, you know, the place can offer. So I thought, okay, we don't want to do 
a, a, a place where tipping is done the conventional way because we want to be able to pay our staff a living wage. We want to be able to provide them with medical care throughout, you know, the back of house, front of house. In Mexico, everybody is, it's, it's a legal obligation to give everybody medical um, coverage. But here in the United States, it's optional. So I was, I was totally, I was, that from the beginning, I was, I was very sort of firm on wanting to give everybody medical coverage. For that, we needed to make a sort of a, a you know, a, a shared tip pool and, or a service charge that would include that. And also, you do want the tips because the tips incentivize people because actually people work for money and it's perfectly it's legitimate. Fair. I mean, it's totally fair. People work because they need money. We need to live in in, in material uh, conditions that imply having money. Unfortunately, this world is ruled by money. Money. So... You were mentioning so, the difference. No, just just to, just to finish. So when when Emma mentioned, you know, when she, when she said like, would you be willing to work with actually with with programs that are more like city organized programs uh, in terms of recovering addicts or people who have been previously incarcerated? To you know, they have all these programs and incentives for lowering recidivism levels. And I was I was very enthusiastic from the beginning. I, you know, I was a little bit adamant about the programs and then we started looking into it and we were really really into it from the beginning and it was just sort of a survival tool also but anyways so you were talking about um the difference between mexico and america the way that workers are treated or i mean in your case it's restaurant workers but you are quite the bridge between um, Mexico and the U.S. You live in both places, and you're about to go back to Mexico yes. um, because the president has asked you to do something. Yes. <laughs> I'm not entirely clear Me neither. on what that is. <laughs> Me neither. Okay. Um, but I wonder at this incredibly tense time between the two countries, and you are skilled, as we've been talking about, um, creating bridges through your deep sort of empathy and understanding what do you feel like you can bring to the president um if it's you know related to mexico and the u.s and maybe it's not no i feel i mean i even felt when he when he said you need, i'm gonna need you back in mexico when i win i thought i mean first of all and i always say this first of all i i, I was very skeptical of his winning because they had already taken two elections from him so i was very i was just skeptical and as he said, you know, this time, unfortunately, I am going to win because they don't even know what they don't. The country is in such poor shape that they don't know what to do with it. But uh, and, and they're going to let me be president now that it's that everything is, you know, in ashes. So in in um, to to him, I would always say there's so many Mexicans in California, specifically, you know, in the United States in general. But it, but specifically in California, I feel very connected to that um, Mexicanness of mine. And I think in general in the food industry, there's no restaurant that doesn't have Mexican workers in the United States. It's really, whether they're legal, illegal, or however they are, I don't know if there are restaurants that have no Mexican workers. I would be very interested. Every chef and every person that I've asked has confirmed that they have a Mexican part of the team at least. And this country, I mean, it's 25% of the population and it's the fastest growing. 
So there's, there's, uh, I, I would always, so my argument to him was that here I could do a lot for Mexicans. And yes, and he's totally aware of that. And in California, we fortunately now have a great governor who is very aware of this as well. And, and, and is all for making bridges, not building walls and burning bridges. And I, I'm just you know, wondering what bridge you would like to build. I would, like, I what would, would you like, like to do? I would like. Okay, so if I if I'm going to go to Mexico, where I think I can help the president more directly, I think I would love to to help in in creating food policies or food education and health related issues that that can be improved greatly with food that have affected the population in Mexico and here. Unfortunately, the, the Mexican population in the United States is one of the worst nourished populations. They have all these sicknesses related to overeating and eating junk food. And um, I would really love to, to, to do something that has to do with food just because that's what I'm very passionate about. But I also feel that, you know, if, if for a time it was discussed whether a more specific role in the United States would be a possibility, but I don't really have political ambitions. I mean, I, 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 I really don't. So I don't want to be an ambassador. I don't want to be a consul. I don't want to... So there was no actual position here that I could take. And so I was appointed to direct this board, to, to, you know, to be the director of this board that um, was established to promote tourism for Mexico and I I you know you that disbanded board, the board uh, yes I thought that I was did. an amazingly brave and fascinating uh choice which is when the president said well and then now you're gonna have to be my advisor I'm like, your advisor on what on tourism and food no on everything so we'll see okay we'll see how that works out with that we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk more deeply about food Right. recipes, cookbooks, and how to replicate some of the incredible dishes from Contramar. Be right back. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of the food, beverage, and hospitality worlds, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Friday, May 31st. Visit nywca.org for more details. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to hear this conversation with my extraordinary guest, Gabriela Camara, who has just published a beautiful and delicious cookbook called My Mexico City Kitchen. You didn't grow up, uh, you know, in a family of cooks, it doesn't seem. I mean, your mother had no interest at all, and you took it upon yourself to at least learn how to make a tortilla. Yes. A very, very important skill at seven years old. Yes, and making tortillas is difficult. Making tortillas is challenging. They seem very easy, but they're challenging. You need to really know what you're doing, and then also you need to be just there. It's very labor-consuming. I'm curious. The, the or cook- labor-intense. The, the cookbook, 
has lots of recipes that actually seem pretty quick and easy. Yes. And the restaurants, like one of the reasons I love Contramar so much, the food is clean, simple, ingredient-driven, Mexican, direct, and completely delicious. And then, of course, I love the I love the dressed-up waiters, and I love the energy and all of that. Yes. But the cookbook brings together some of the, the salsas and the drinks and the yes. main courses, and they seem very doable to me. And I think that's partly because you love home cooking. Yes. And you brought that notion of home cooking to the restaurants, but then yes. also the cookbook. And I'm just... Like, Tell me about that. Like, how did your love for home cooking evolve, knowing that you had a mom who's like, no thanks? I mean, she was no thanks, but she loves to eat well, and she always did things. Okay. And my father was a great cook, too. So the two of them sort of shared that responsibility. It was very uncommon in Mexico to have the father figure collaborate in anything that had to do with domestic duties, quote-unquote. So in my house, that was off as well. Like, everybody in Tepoztlan was... <laughs> what do you mean your father made breakfast for you? Your father makes breakfast? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Which was just, it was just, it, it isn't that other men weren't doing that at the time, but it was just in that context of a small town in Mexico that just was not what men would be doing. So, but I did grow up eating amazing home cook, home cooking, home food, sorry. I grew up with a grandmother who was an extraordinary cook. I grew up with another grandmother that was an extraordinary cook, even though she died when I was six years old. My aunts were incredible. Like just, they still are incredible heirs of that tradition of cooking good food and making sure that that was sort of a binding glue of family life. I love that notion that cooking grounds you, that you can be anywhere and you're grounded by the food that you cook. Yes. And I've discovered that by um, living in different places. And I also love to eat whatever is from where I am. Not only like the nostalgic part of cooking Mexican when I was in Florence, because I love food in Florence when I'm in Florence. I don't even crave like this chamoy or tamarind spicy sweets that in Mexico I could have all day in in I remember bringing them to Italy or having somebody bring them to me thinking that I would really appreciate them and I was you know actually I just want Nutella dabbed on bread or I want olive oil and and bread for a snack in the afternoon or you know I remember they would give us that for snack at school when you know the mid-afternoon break like a loaf of of um, a little a little bun with with Nutella or with olive oil, and I didn't even have a craving for the Mexican flavors. But I do think that food, especially full meals, really do ground you. And I do believe. I mean, and it's a it's a characteristic of every culture that you know when they migrate, they bring their food. Food is something that can travel with you, and you might not have you know your house, your landscape, your but you, if you have some of your food, then it's, it gives you that identity. And I believe that, um, fortunately, in my case, migration has always been voluntar uh, vol voluntary. Mm -hmm. Voluntary? Yeah. Uh, but, and that, I think, is a huge difference. Uh, but I do, you know, it makes you appreciate where you are much more, I think, in a way. Also, not, I mean, not that the other type of migration doesn't make you appreciate where you are but it's just very different um i think that uh that 
that for me, knowing how to make certain recipes of my grandmothers or of my family was even more important than what ingredients or, or, or where the dish came from. It was just from them. It was just, it's part of being a family. And I want Lucas, my son, to know that these cookies I made with this grandmother or this was something that my other grandmother loved eating or this is something that we've always um, had like this at the house. My father used to make it this way or my brother and I would wake up in the morning and make these pancakes or this French toast or this egg. And I just feel that food is something that that you transmit from, you know, it goes from one generation to the next in a really concrete way. So let's just take a generational yes. tour. Yes. Um, so you had these powerful grandmothers in your uh -huh. life. What, when you think of them, like what is the dish that's in this cookbook that really makes you think like that is my grandmother? That's my... So my, my paternal grandmother, Doña Concha, who was from Campeche, was very well known for her food and for her humongous banquets like she would cook for a lot of people and she was always very generous and she was always very you know anybody could come to her house at lunchtime and she would make sure that they were fed and I love that everybody tells me that I am very much like her because she died when I was six and I remember her but I didn't get to actually spend you know like relevant time of my cooking learning years with her um I I I think of her with the pipipollo, pipipollo, which is this humongous tamal that is done in the southeast of Mexico, and it has a chiote, and it's in a banana leaf. And then, what do I think of with nonna? My grandmother, my Italian grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, I cooked with everything. Um, so I, I think of her with so many dishes that actually aren't on this cookbook, just because some of them aren't Mexican enough, but I feel, you know, I feel that every, I, I, what, 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 what I have in this book that is very much from her is this very attentive, careful, non-wasteful approach to food and, and what certain it, like basic things like stocks or the way to cook beans or uh, chickpeas or lentils or, you know, <laughs> What about your son, Luca? He's in the book. Yes. Beautiful. Lucas. Yes. Blonde. Um, and what do you cook with him? Or what's it, you know, in this book, you're like, this is the recipe that he would just gravitate toward that says family to him. I think he's very proud of knowing how to make tortillas as well. But he's very proud of knowing how to make pasta. And he makes pasta with my father. And my father is an Italian, but he was the pasta maker Always. I don't know why. I think he's, he loves manual things. He loves working with his hands. So when we were growing up, my brother was, a, was not as good an eater as I was. And it wasn't that he didn't eat everything. He was just lazy. And he would say that. He would always say, oh, I don't want to eat a steak. It's so, it takes so long. And he would want to eat pasta all day. And we were, you know, in that time in Mexico, you could not find good pasta. So my parents took it on themselves, took it upon themselves to make good pasta with eggs. So we brought this machine from Italy and we, well, we had the manual machine, but then when there was this mechanic machine, we brought it, um, an electric pasta maker. I remember the, the excitement about it. And um, I, you know, I, we, we've always, we've always, I think Lucas, I think Lucas is very proud of just doing anything and participating in the cooking process. And I think that's also the way I feel 
towards food and towards family gatherings. It's always about what you're making. It's always about what you're going to eat. And then when you're eating it, it's always about what you're going to eat next and how you're going <laughs> to... Well, speaking of um, eating next, the the closing question of the show is to pay it forward. Because I love highlighting women who aren't, aren't as well known as some of my guests and to put a spotlight on them. So who would you pay it forward to? A, a woman in the world of food who you admire very much and why? Mm, and somebody who's not that well known? I mean, take your pick. But. Mm, I admire the woman who makes staff meal at Contramar every day. And she's also the woman who makes the tortillas. And that position has always been together. And she's What's just... What's her name? Lupita. And she's been there for so long. And she's just extraordinary. And she's such a good cook. That's great. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly today. It's uh, such a pleasure to hold and cook from your book. And to experience your restaurants and then I can't wait to see what you do for food policy in Mexico America and beyond so thank you so much for joining thank me you. I'm also I'm going to keep on doing restaurants so it's I... been great look yeah. forward to those in the yes. future thank um, you everybody knows where to find me um, at Speaking Broadly on Instagram and where can people find you Gabriela at Gabriela Camara that's it. Thanks um, for my engineer today and Nita Medvitskaya for being my co-producer. And come on back next week. Have a great week. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.